the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, the slow accretion of 100% certified organic nanotech produces life on a formerly barren chunk of rock. Raja Papas may seem all-powerful, but harem scarum. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have part two of a two-part interview with Eric Flint and Griffin Barber talking about the new entry in the Ring of Fire series, 1636 Mission to the Moguls. In this entry in the series, a group of uptimer Grantville residents, that is people from uh, the modern-day town of Grantville, West Virginia, that got thrown back into the 1630s in Europe, and downtime adventurers arrive in what will be India and try to trade with a fractious Mughal empire for opium and saltpeter. In this part two of the interview, Eric and Griffin delve even deeper into the bizarre and fascinating politics and culture of the time. So stay tuned for that. And we also continue with the complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. We are closing in on the end of that one, folks. Now here's the news. April mass markets thunder across the start line at Talladega and other places that sell books. By the way, when I was a Boy Scout, I once raised the flag at the Talladega 500, and the thing got stuck halfway up because the pulley was rusted at the top. I literally had to climb the pole using the cord like, you know, like Batman in the old series in front of 70,000 people until it suddenly came unstuck, and down I came. Also got Richard Petty's autograph at that one. So I know what I'm talking about when I say these are some stock car powerful paperbacks this month. In pole position, we have Silence by Mercedes Lackey and Cody Martin. This is the Serrated Edge series, and it's back. I really like this one that places elves in the modern world and gives them modern problems to deal with. In Silence, teenager Stacy's father has just remarried, and now she finds herself shunted all the way to the rundown and dying main town of Silence and into the custody of her yucky alcoholic mother. And it gets worse. Silence seems to be stuck in a proverbial stone age for some reason. We might find out why. There's no cell phone service except at the very top of the bluff outside of town. No internet except dial-up. But all is not as it seems in silence. There are strange things moving beneath the shabby surface. Terrible plots in play and deadly players in a supernatural game afoot. Also at Booksellers is Shooting the Rift by Alex Stewart. This is a cool science fiction and space opera with a bang, and it has a humorous edge. Cast out by his family and exiled from the Wimward Commonwealth, Simon Forrester has to make a new life for himself as an apprentice to the powerful Commerce Guild, but others aboard the merchant vessel Stacked Deck have a hidden agenda that might lead directly to interstellar war. Now Simon finds himself forced to choose between old and new loyalties, with the fate of an empire at stake. Silence by Mercedes Lackey and Cody Martin and Shooting the Rift by Alex Stewart are now roaring across the finish line with checkered flags flying and into the hands of readers at booksellers everywhere. 
This is part two of a two-part interview with Eric Flint and Griffin Barber talking about their new entry in the Ring of Fire series, 1636 Mission to the Moguls. I want to welcome Eric Flint and Griffin Barber to the podcast. Hello, guys. Hi. Hey. Uh, Eric Flint is a modern master of alternate history fiction with over three million books in print. He's the creator of the multiple New York Times bestselling Ring of Fire series, starting with the first novel, 1632. With David Drake, he's written six popular novels in the Belisarius alternate Roman history series, and David Weber collaborated on 1633. 1634, the Baltic War, and the uh, sort of honorable sub-series that included latest entry, Cauldron of Ghosts. Um, what's the name of that sub-series again, Eric? It suddenly just dropped from my mind. Uh, Crown of Slaves, right? Yeah, it's kind of, there's three books in it. There's Crown of Slaves, Torture, Freedom, and the last one was Cauldron of Ghosts. They're all part of... Uh, of of David's honor verse. He's also co-authored with Reich Spohr, David Carrico, Katie Wentworth, Dave Freer, and many others. Eric's latest solo Ring of Fire novel is 1636, The Audubon Onslaught. He was for many years a labor union activist, and he lives near Chicago, Illinois, over there on the Gary side of things, I believe. Griffin Barber spent his youth in four different countries, learning three languages and burning all his bridges. Finally settled in Northern California with a day job as a police officer in a major metropolitan department. He lives the good life with his lovely wife, crazy smart daughter, needy dog, and indifferent cat. That's a lot of adjectives. Now at Booksellers Everywhere is a new addition to the Ring of Fire series, 1636 Mission to the Mughals. All right, tell me how to say it, guys. Mughals, yeah. Mughals. Yeah. Uh, as Griffin was telling me, it's, it's like... Uh, we got our term uh, mogul from it. By Eric Flint and Griffin Barber. So tell us about the society. I mean, there are mostly Hindus. They're ruled over by um, Muslim uh, rulers who are former, who are descended from the uh, from Genghis Khan and his his folks. Um, and there are other sects there, like the um, the Sikhs. Um, what what is the mix going on, and how is um? It sounds like a powder keg to me. Yeah, well, that was and that was one of the things that that uh, um, their system, the way they governed, was that you had the the emperor had his court, and the kids were part of that court. But the children, once they reached a certain age, they were released, and they were made to have their own courts, and in those courts they would, those courts would act as poles to subvert uh, those that were dis, you know, disaffected with the regime, the emperor. They would go to the sun and find employment with him. And therefore, when, when there was a change of emperor, oftentimes there was a change in the kind of the position of the way people lived their lives and that kind of thing, because the governance had changed uh, so radically, but they kept the dissidents in the family by, you know, basically setting their sons in opposition to themselves. So it was a really fascinating uh, that I don't think I have ever seen in, in all my studies of history. I don't think I've ever seen that anywhere else uh, in the way that they, you know, basically coldly manipulated people into 
There's no choice but us as a family, but there's a lot of choice with us as a family. So, but in the wider context that you're asking about, the, you have India is, is uh, at the time is, I believe, at least 90% uh, Hindu. Uh, only the North has been converted and that lightly. Um, there are, and when you say that the, the Muslims are ruling, they are and they aren't. They are the ultimate rulers, but they have, a, especially in the era that we're talking about and previously, whenever they conquered somebody, they didn't necessarily insist that they convert. So long as they were willing to pay the tax, good on you. We don't care if you want to pay the tax. And you know, so long as you send me your daughters to marry into the family, we're good. So the, there are huge numbers of Rajputs uh, who were fierce warriors and, and uh, devastating uh, uh, infantry that were uh, signed in with them. There were also some uh, Rajput that were uh, known for their horseback riding and that kind of thing. Um, and they also have the rise of the Sikh faith. Uh, up until the sixth guru, who took power in the uh, early uh, days of, this, uh, of the uh, 17th century, um, you, the, the Sikhs are very uh, uh, peaceable. They do not, they're agrarian, they have a very much a turn the other cheek, and, uh, but they're so beloved by their followers that the Mughals get pretty jealous of them and, and want to, uh, to make sure that they're under the, the uh, Mughal rule. So they keep imprisoning uh, gurus. The fifth guru has been imprisoned and murdered and executed, uh, I think the third and the fourth as well. Um, but the sixth guru is the one who militarized the Sikhs. If you look at the Sikh flag today, you see the flower and then the two swords on either side of it. Mm. Sixth guru uh, is the one who decided that, that was, uh, he was going to wear two swords, Miri and Piri, which are uh, the signs of his power temporal and his power spiritual. Uh, and luckily enough, you know, the, this, this era that, that uh, Eric uh, allowed me to write in, <laughs> I got to uh, play with that. Uh, you know, here's this guy who's militarizing the Sikhs, and okay, that's one of the first things that happens when the, uh, when the Europeans arrive and when the, the uptoppers arrive in court is uh, there's some stuff going on with the Sikhs, and it's, it's bad news for everybody involved. There, uh, and Eric had mentioned that Mullah Mohan, uh, he's kind of an Ayatollah kind of dude, right? He's, he's a, and he's a rabble rouser. Um, and he is in some way allied by the former emperor's widow. Is that correct? Even though he doesn't really know it. Um, it's, <laughs> we thought of doing a genealogical chart of the Mughals and we finally decided it just got so complicated we wouldn't do it. Um, she was the, uh, God, what was she, 23rd wife or something, Griff, of uh, yes. of the emperor's, the current emperor, Shah Jahan's father, but she was not his mother. So she, I don't know, quite well, but how would you describe her relationship? It gets complicated. Uh, yeah, that was, that was his stepmother and his wife's aunt. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe tell us about the harem and and what's how are women treated? What's there's a certain rule that they have. It's uh, what is it called? Um, starts with a P. The Perda. Yeah. Perda. Perda. Yeah. So yeah, 
Alberta is the, the separation of, uh, of single women uh, uh, from view of, uh, of the public and from uh, certainly from men. Um, it's a religious stricture that uh, leads to the burqas that you see and uh, that are so emblematic of, uh, of Middle Eastern uh, uh, culture as, as far as our women are concerned. Um, the harem uh, in its expression in India was interesting because there are uh, veiling rules for the Rajputs who are Hindu, uh, as for their women as well, um, and they also practiced sati, which is you know the immolation of themselves after the death of their husband. Um, so there was a lot of already pre-existing uh, situations in uh, India that were uh, not the best for women, um, and then in the harem. Uh, anybody who is uh, affluent enough, you may have you know, multiple wives in Islam, so long as all of those wives are treated equally. Uh, they cannot have, one cannot be favored over the others as far as economically. So if you buy one car for a wife, you have to buy two cars, for, you know, one for each wife or whatever it may be. Um, so there's a lot of situations like that. So the harem at this time is served, uh, it is, uh, it's also a place of power because the women uh, who are, you know, uh, associated with the, uh, the emperor's harem, they have unprecedented amounts of power, uh, even more so and for more formal power than some, in some ways, the, the courts of Europe, uh, the queens and the dowager queens and empresses of Europe, because they had the uh, power of life and death, but they also had strict uh, control over the children uh, of the emperors. Um, they raised them until they were 10. They had to see to their education. Uh, so they, and they, of course, many of these uh, imperial mothers did not nurse the children themselves. So they had uh, uh, foster, uh, you know, uh, the term is escaping me right now, but uh, foster mothers that were uh, responsible for wet nurses. They had wet nurses right. and the children of those wet yeah, the, the children of those wet nurses were um, also uh, members of that imperial household, and they would become that prince's, uh, you know, closest guards um, because they were, you know, they shared the same milk and they were raised together, et cetera. Um, but, to, you know, the biggest thing to remember is, is it is an oppressive system. You know, 99.9% .9 of people that were in these harems were not there. Uh, it, they were there regardless of their choice in the matter. Um, so it, it's, there are some very dark uh, kind of things going on, uh, including you know the, the making of eunuchs uh, out of boys, so that they be uh, they could serve the harem without uh, risking the purity of those women. Um, a bunch of things that are just really hard to uh, to swallow from a modern West, Western perspective as far as how they live. One of the things that's come out reading about the Safavids is, is, and I've already run into this with the Ottomans, when you have harems of the type that these empires had, you get a fascinating... I mean, these women were not powerless by any stretch of the imagination. They just always had to work behind the scenes, and it makes for great storytelling. <laughs> it really does. Uh, and... Uh, it got. It could often get ruthless as hell. Uh, although, to 
typically the weapons of choice tended to be more subtle forms of assassination, especially poisoning. But uh, you got the same thing with the Safavids. I mean, it uh, it uh, exact same kind of dynamic, and and it, 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 they had a different. Um, with them, the ethnic component was much more important because the uh, Iranians, as such, didn't actually dominate the empire initially. They were actually dominated by Turks. Um, never mind. I'd have to go into it. it. Had to do with the whole history of the Sufi order that originated them. But then later on, the emperors, in order to play off the Iranians and the Turks, started importing a lot of Georgian people from the Caucasus: Georgians, Circassians, Armenians, and they would often bring them in as as women for their harems. And then once those women would have children, they'd start maneuvering to get their children in position. So before, <laughs> it's really fascinating stuff to work with. Uh, yeah, the the uh, the harem stuff was uh, a challenge and uh, a, a playground. I mean, it's it really was. There was a lot to to dive into and to work through and to figure out how to to do these interactions because uh, you know the the Mughal court was the first time I had seen where yeah you you brought it up earlier that the, a daughter's in the harem, uh, you know, and she's running the show in the harem because the the favorite wife's dead. There's really not a whole lot of mention of the other wives of, of Shah Jahan, aside from as parents of these uh, collateral princes that were never as important uh, to uh, uh, Shah Jahan or to the uh, actual uh, succession. So there's a lot of uh, fascinating stuff, to, as, as Eric was saying, to, to kind of play around with. And the ethnic makeup of the, the Mughals, they were much, very much open to marriage alliances and, and uh, bringing in people because, and as a matter of fact, uh, Shah Jahan, his wife, Mumtaz, Mumtaz was the, her, her parents, uh, her and her aunt, Nur Jahan, they were Persians. They had come into the country as, uh, merchants, itinerant merchants with horses and everything. They'd almost lost their lives multiple times. Uh, in different attacks and things like that, and eventually they rose to pow- prominence in the court you know, of Jahangir, and uh, she was married to one other to another man beforehand, and then uh, Nur Jahan, in any case, was married to another man, and then uh, eventually got to, uh, he was killed in battle. I'm going to put air quotes on in battle because there's some questions to whether or not Jahan or Jahangir had him killed or not. Um, so that uh, he could be with her. Um, and then when it comes to their control and their own faith within the, the uh, harem, whoever was boss in the harem, either the preferred wife or the emperor themselves, uh, or the many administrators, uh, they could be running the show. So there was a lot of uh, harem politics that were involved in the original history, and some of it divided along religious lines. There were the Shah Jahan's uh, harem included uh, Portuguese women that were taken as prisoners uh, in Hooghly. Uh, there were uh, Armenians, uh, a number of other Christians uh, that were taken either as prisoners or uh, sold by their uh, families. Uh, and then there were the Rajputs, uh, etc. I mean, it's just an amazing uh, mix of uh, folks uh, that uh, they would bring together in this uh, closed environment, closed world, and uh, they would then start to generate their influence, what influence they could. 
One of the interesting things that uh, that you have in the book that I did not know about at all was that there were also some uh, female warriors who uh, guarded the harem in this era. Yeah, they, uh, I I had uh, um, I did a, a, an inordinate amount of research on this, um, and one of the, the uh, there were t- three sources that I had that I talked about the female harem guards. The most telling was the historical record of the civil war between uh, Aurangzeb and Dara Shiko. Uh, Dara has already lost, more or less, uh, but Shah Jahan is still alive. And Shah Jahan is trying to get them to come to a meeting between, you know, have him uh, be the middleman for a meeting within his harem of Aurangzeb and Shah Jahan. And Shah Jahan, uh, uh, I'm sorry, excuse me, between Aurangzeb and Dara Shiko. And Dara uh, is like, yeah, sure, I'm, I'm, I've already lost anyway, so yeah, it only does me good to go and sit at Daddy's knee and try and get him to solve, solve this. But Aurangzeb's, uh, Aurangzeb's um, advisors all tell him, don't do it. Shah Jahan is only looking for an opportunity to set his women warriors on you, and they will kill you. Don't do it. And Aurangzeb, for that, probably, he probably used that as his public reason, but he publicly admitted to concerns over being assassinated in his father's court by women, women warriors. So I was just like, that. I've got to work that in. They, <laughs> they had to be such scary women <laughs> yeah. to be able to, to impress upon this guy who's going to be the emperor for however long that he'll be murdered by him. I thought that was awesome. So, you know, you, you have this position where they're being oppressed and it's just, you know, it's really bad, but they also have a place where they rule supreme and that they, where they can maneuver and, and be full people uh, within that. And I wanted to make sure I reflected that these were real people, full people, not, uh, you know, property. Yeah. Um, and part of doing that was being able being able to look at, at uh, you know, these warrior women and have them be just kick-ass characters uh, and and uh, people. Yeah. Well, okay. they have their own. Uh, well, they have their own uh, loyalties and and uh, alignments as well. Well, we should talk about uh, is Jahara right the um, the daughter? Why why is she in the harem to begin? She's the daughter of the Shah. I mean, of the uh, emperor. Why is she in the harem? And she sort of runs it, right? She's a major character in the book. Uh, and that's, yeah, Jahanara, uh, Jahanara Begum was uh, another historical figure, and she was uh, an incredibly accomplished, a poet, uh, uh, a linguist, um, just did amazing things um, uh, throughout her life. She was also very long-lived, um, but she had, uh, when her mother passed away, she was the one who held things together because Dara's kind of, Dara's kind of, you know, kind of spoiled and concerned with himself and uh, those kind of things. But when dad goes into a, a spirals into a massive depression, uh, she's the one who holds the family together and continues the education of the younger children uh, and also uh, is a forceful personality and a force for, you know, good in as far as her reach goes. She also paid for uh, a huge number of gardens to be instituted, but also for um, 
to go on the Hajj to uh, uh, Mecca. Uh, she funded that. She had trading concerns, um, which was all kind of typical for the very uh, uppermost echelons of the imperial court women, was that they had uh, access to their own funds and could invest it the way they wished. Um, and she took over her mother's holdings, and she inherited many of her mother's holdings, she and her younger sisters. Um, so she, uh, and she is right at that edge of uh, becoming her own kind of power, but in the historical record, she was never allowed to marry uh, because, well, in the, I think because for two reasons. Number one, dad didn't want to see his daughter die uh, as his wife had died. Um, he also, uh, they didn't want to dilute power by giving someone else a claim through a mother's line. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about it in, in Islam, that is really the big division between the two major sects of Islam is uh, Sunni and Shia, where the one is uh, you know, tracing the lineage back to Muhammad through the wife of Muhammad. So they did not want to dilute that claim. But I don't think that there was a personal connection there that he didn't want to uh, forego. And his wife died in childbirth. Um giving yes and well when when griff and i discussed this book i mean right from the very start we we agreed that Jahanaro in some ways she's the central character of the whole story um um but really the two most central figures i think and certainly more interesting ones are her and and salim the um the afghan emir um and you know it, it it was just very obvious to us that uh, that she, she was just a fascinating character, and that you know it would be crazy not to have her central to the whole story. So um, that was kind of something we decided on right from the very start. I mean, the uh, our our delegation arrives. Um, they travel to the court. What sort of events might this set in motion? What's uh, what's going to happen, or what might happen? Um, this is something that didn't happen in history, obviously, in our history. Well, essentially, this is the story, but we don't want to tell the whole story. But what yeah. what what might be some ramifications well, of this? Yeah, we proceeded. There's two things going on. Again, I I have that. Uh, you know, the uptimers, they seem to, in the other stories, they seem to have a larger impact than, uh, or they, they have had a larger impact in the mainline series uh, because of, of where they're from and when they're from. Um, I kind of wanted to go and, and just kind of go with, you know, the, the whole, uh, if you could shoot Hitler and, and kill him, would you? You know, that, that, that old saw of that, that kind of argument is, is kind of turned on a little bit on its side and, and pushed a little bit out of the way with this one. This is it. So if you, as you were the emperor, and you found out that you were imprisoned for 40 years by your third youngest son, the one you don't favor, and that your the, the son you do favor is a failure because of what you did <laughs> in his upbringing, uh, how do you fix that? So 
it's much more about the knowledge that they're bringing about themselves or the, the, the outcomes of the decisions they're making or have made that powers the story and, and makes the change go on. Dara, for instance, gets to have his, uh, his Prince, uh, Prince Henry come to Jesus moment and, and stop being the spoiled guy. It's a good, it's a great, um, subplot of the book. Uh, he, he, uh, and that was, yeah, that was one of my, uh, my hopes was, is it, you know, are these people, you know, cause to certain sects, uh, in, in in India, certain religions in India, Aurangzeb is really on a level with some of the most heinous figures in history uh, because of his insistence on uh, uh, tearing down temples uh, and uh, his, you know, just wholesale forced conversions of uh, Hindus and uh, uh, Jains and all of the different religions in that era. Uh, he's really viewed as a guy that, that needs to go down in history as a, as a bad guy. But he's 15 when this book opens. And how did he get there? Uh, I thought that was an interesting question that I wanted to explore. So I, I do. And uh, a lot of it has to do with his, his uh, great stepmother, and who is also his great aunt, <laughs> Um, and her interplay with the previous generations and the whole setup of the Mughal emperor empire and its, uh, its inheritance, uh, system such as it was. So, uh, again, that question, that big question overarching is, is that, okay, what is ha what happens when you find out all these things about, uh, what's going on? And then also, um, when the uptimers show up, uh, you know, there's there's a, some debate currently about whether or not the Mughal Empire was the first gunpowder empire, um, and I, I kind of was like, yeah, whatever. But I, I wasn't so much focused on that question as fascinated by the fact that they they turned it away. They didn't really care that much about it because because why? Because they had systems in place to do what they wanted to do, and they were rich beyond reason. Um, there's a reason why, you know, you're called a music mogul or whatever today is because these guys were just fabulously rich. The peacock throne, all these things that they had. So when the uptimers show up with their, hey, we've got a railway system. Uh, we, can, we can show you how to do this. Um, and it's the guys talking to the emperor, not uh, the midwife slash paramedic that's talking. They, you know, they play up their technical expertise. And the emperor is like, yeah, but I've got a whole class of people who transport goods back and forth in my country. You want to put them out of work? That's not right. I, I don't want to hear that. And so he kind of poo-poos them and, and, you know, and turns them down, which is just completely not the way uh, most of the, the series goes. Most everybody's like, yes, we can get this modern stuff. And uh, as opposed to them, who are, you know, he's again, and he's not really doing it because he's stuck up in the mud in his own way. He's doing it for his own reasons. He's the emperor, and he has a case of people who are the, the guys who handle shipping. And he's concerned that, you know, you're going to put them out of business. Mm -hmm. uh, so he immediately kind of, you know, denies them the, that option. And then events transpire that uh, blow things up even more so. 
so that uh, we have the sweeping battles and uh, uh, the court going off to war, et cetera. So uh, I think that's probably got a good good little nutshell there of uh, yeah. why we did what we did. Well, was it as with any um, Ring of Fire novel? There's there's a there's a good battle <laughs> that we that we um, get to participate in. So the book closes with a pretty big hint. There's going to be a sequel. Um, have y'all got one in the planning stage or or beyond? Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, we do. Uh, uh, the working title is called The Peacock Throne, and uh, uh, Chris already worked out a rough draft of the plot outline, which we've kicked around. Are you uh, you working? Remind me where you're at with this group, because I've been working on something else, so I haven't really been yeah, staying in touch with you. I uh, yeah, I haven't been uh, I haven't done a whole lot of work on it uh, since that uh, that draft that I, sh- I presented to you, because we we had some yeah. arguments we were trying to figure out as far as uh, feasibility and and uh, also just making sure that we we went as hard on the uh, you know the the. We want to make sure that we're again treating everybody with respect because we're talking about four major religions, and, uh, you know, the, the again the oppression of women and stuff like that. We want to make sure we did handle everything with respect. So we're trying to uh, work our way through an outline that's also a fun story. You know, it, the, the whole point of this is to tell a romp, but we also want to make sure that I certainly want to make sure that I'm respectful of uh, you know religions and that kind of thing as we, as we go forward. So it's a uh, it's a bit harder to do the sequel as. Well, what are Eric? You mentioned you're working on something. What are what are y'all working on, um, other than this or along with this? Me right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I'm partly working on this because uh, right now I'm reading a book on the history of the Safavid dynasty in Persia. Uh, there were three great Muslim powers in this time period: the Ottoman Turks, the Mughal India, and in, in between them, uh, the Safavid dynasty ruled Persia. And the Safavids originated as a Sufi sect. They actually had a religious origin, and then after about 200 years, they seized power. Um, And they imposed a very harsh Shia uh, uh, dynasty over over Persia, which is kind of unusual, because the Mughals were quite tolerant uh, of other religions, and... uh, and the Ottomans were fairly well, also, um, but the uh, the, the uh, partly because of their origins, the Safavid dynasty uh, was much more rigid. Anyway, it's just kind of interesting reading it, um, and uh, I just wanted to do it partly partly because it's it's spilling over into two different lines of the 1632 series I'm working on. The one I'm mainly working on follows directly from the Ottoman onslaught, and it focuses on the Ottomans, but the Safavids were a major opponent of the Ottomans. So I need to know about them from that point of view, but they're also going to figure quite prominently in the next book. And Griffin, do you continue to produce short stories in the 1632 universe? Actually, I haven't been uh, writing much uh, of those. I, I've had some change-ups at my regular work, so uh, my schedule's been a bit off. Um, I've been pursuing some uh, science fiction writing and uh, uh, also a fantasy novel, uh, all of which are you know on spec. They're just uh, working on them. And 
another of uh, Eric's collaborators, uh, Alistair Kimball, is uh, has co-authored a novel with him. That's a, uh, I believe it's called Iron Angels. Yes. Coming from Bing. Yeah, we just pitched uh, that. Yeah, that's uh, coming out in. That's coming out in September. Yeah, we just pitched it at sales conference. Now, uh, Alistair Adam, is a uh, FBI uh, guy, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a con. It's a cross between urban fantasy, kind of a horror story, and a police procedural focused on the FBI. Because yeah, Alistair is an FBI agent, so um, I have the benefit of being able to tap into his expertise. Um, and it's actually interesting to me. Um, um, police procedurals are very common, but there aren't very many that feature the FBI. It's interesting. They mostly figure uh, local police forces. So um, I suggest that to Alistair, and he thought it was a nice idea. So that's what we've been working on. Um, he's also doing uh, a series based on the Maltese, uh, uh, the Knights Hospitaller in Malta, during this, you know, the time period of the 1632 series. And there are various things that are going to develop out of that. The other things I'm working on right now, I'm finishing up a novel that I'm doing at Dave Freer that's in the Shadow of the Lion series that we've worked on uh, with Misty Lackey. And uh, I've been plotting out the next, uh, the sequel to um, uh, Ottoman Onslaught. Uh, I haven't got it quite plotted out yet, but I, uh, I, 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 I need to plot it out because uh, Paul... Uh, Goodlett and Gord Huff, whom I worked with in the series, they're writing their own story that's going to link with some stories, I'm, with some novels I'm going to do, one by myself, one with Chuck. So I've got to make sure the time frame all works out properly. Um, and that's uh, pretty much what I've been doing. Griff, what were you going to say about, uh, and you have some connection with Alistair Campbell, or is that... Actually, yes, we, we both met Chuck at the same time and uh, both uh, hit it off and, and uh, we met each other at the same time at the world, one of the World Fantasy Conventions. But Alistair and I are uh, plotting right now a, uh, and outlining a uh, police procedural set in the near future um, involving an FBI agent and uh, drones and, and murder and space stations. So oh, cool. working on that uh, right now in our free time. <laughs> Hopefully that'll be forthcoming at some point. Yeah, I love science fiction uh, crossovers with mysteries. Sometimes they don't sell as well. Sometimes they they do, but um, um, it's it's possibly my favorite science fiction subgenre. So wish you well with that. And on where we go. So the book out right now is sixteen thirty six Mission to the Mughals by Eric Flint and Griffin Barber. It's now available at booksellers everywhere. Eric and Griffin, thank you very much for being with us. That was part two and the conclusion of an interview with Eric Flint and Griffin Barber talking about their new entry in the Ring of Fire series, 1636, Mission to the Moguls. You can hear part one of the interview on the previous podcast. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. 
It seems Cinnabar's chief spymaster is a mother also, and her son is determined to search for treasure in the midst of a civil war. Who better to hold the boy's hand and to take the blows directed at him than Captain Daniel Leary, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy's troubleshooter, and his friend the cyberspy Adele Mundy. The only thing certain in the struggle for control of the mining planet Corsera is that the rival parties are more dangerous to their own allies than to their opponents. Daniel and Adele face kidnappers, pirates, and a death squad even before they can get to the real business of ending the war on Corsera and bringing their charge home, maybe along with ancient alien treasure. Now here is the next entry of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. Adele took the data chip from the case which Graves handed her. Setting it in the console's holder, she said, it will project in the center of the compartment as well as on the two displays, but you'll probably want to manipulate it, Brother Graves. Take the command seat and I'll sit at the back, as I usually do. Instead of seating himself immediately, Graves frowned and said, I realize this is a very powerful unit, Lady Mundy, but the programming necessary to read this format. A holographic index of files appeared in the air where Cleveland and Daniel could read it. So could Hogg and Tovera, for that matter, though Adele doubted they had any desire to. She said nothing. I apologize, Graves said politely. He sat down and brought up a file with a stylus he had drawn from his pocket. Adele said nothing, but she appreciated the simplicity of Graves' apology. The image meant nothing to Adele. It might have been a close-up of luncheon spread, an inadverted arch of basically pinkish color with overlayers and inclusions of contrasting colors, generally shades of pastel green. Near the bottom of the U was a black speck. Below was a layer of sullen crimson. This is a cross-section of Pearl Valley, Graves said. The pink is mudstone laid down 30,000 years ago. The underlayer is granite, and there are blocks of harder rock which were engulfed as the mudstone formed when the valley was part of a lake bed. Cleveland nodded. Daniel didn't react, but Adele assumed he understood as clearly as even she did. The item brother Cleveland noticed is here, Graves said, circling the black dot and then expanding it to fill the image area. I suspect the original surveyors ignored it because it was too small to be of significance. They were looking for copper ore, after all. That isn't a natural occurrence, Daniel said. It has shape. No crystal could look like that. It has shape, Graves said. Adele heard an unexpectedly grim tone in his voice. And it's hollow, which we can see because one end is open and there are holes in some of the facets. He switched to another image, this one a schematic of pale blue lines. The image rotated slowly. The shape was irregular, something like a drinking tumbler which had been squeezed in the middle and whose sides were pleated. Besides the open top, holes shaped like twisted teardrops pierced the sides in several places. The bottom, though concave, was solid. It isn't a container of jewels, Cleveland said, but it's something. And somebody, Captain Pearl or somebody, buried it there. Pearl Valley's mudstone would be very easy to bore through or trench, Graves said, returning to the image of the object in its matrix. He reduced the scale slightly. It couldn't be disturbed without leaving evidence of the disturbance, however. Not when I've examined the site with equipment as sensitive as what I've been using. He 
He grinned and turned toward Daniel. Adele watched his face, now in profile, as an inset on her display. You may be too polite to ask whether I could have made a mistake, Captain, Graves said. Yes, of course I could, though these images don't require a very subtle analysis. I asked two other engineers to look over the scans. They aren't members of our community, but I trust them personally and professionally. They came to the same conclusions that I did. Graves shrugged. The mudstone appears to have formed over the object, he said. If it's an artifact, it isn't a human artifact, and it certainly isn't something that Captain Pearl buried. Adele had a great deal of experience in sharpening fuzzy images, but these had not been manipulated. She was looking at raw data as it came from the surveying equipment, and they were razor sharp even at the highest magnification. Brother Graves, she said, what is the object made of? It would appear to be very dense. Yes, Lady Mundy, Graves said, turning toward her with a troubled expression. Adele had inset real-time images of the three other principals on his display, but Graves seemed to be trying to look through the holographic screen to see her directly. It's almost impossibly dense. Granted that our scans have a degree of error and that gravity plotting is suggestive rather than solid proof, he shrugged again. My colleagues and I believe that the artifact is made from a stable transuranic element, Graves said. Element 126, presumably, though the element's existence is merely a prediction and it has no name. Well, unbihexium, but that's a placeholder unless and until the element itself is discovered, which we apparently have just done. Then it's valuable after all, Cleveland said. He too looked worried even though it isn't a case of jewels. I suppose you could say that the artifact is of incalculable value, Graves agreed. There isn't a market for such a thing because it would be unique in human experience, but it's certainly valuable. I don't see any sign of an antenna, a wire, or a spike on the end, Daniel said. I thought it might be a sort of cavity resonator, trapping signals and re-emitting them on a different wavelength. What sort of signals are, Captain? Adele said. I didn't make a detailed search of Pearl Valley, but I think my equipment would have noticed anything that didn't fit standard parameters. I don't know, Daniel said. He grinned engagingly. Nothing electronic, then, not if you didn't pick it up. He looked from Graves to Cleveland, then said as if idly, You believe Pearl Valley is a good place to live, Master Cleveland? For that matter, I like the atmosphere myself. Though I'm probably not a good example, I generally like places. Yes, that's so, Cleveland said, obviously puzzled at the change of subject. About the valley, certainly. And I'm glad to hear that you're a happy man, sir. Pretty generally, yes, Daniel said, still grinning. What do you suppose feelings look like? And how would you transmit them? There's no evidence, Graves said. He let his words trail off, perhaps because he had thought further and had realized that there was no objective evidence on any part of the matter. The helpful, welcoming nature of the transformationist community was wholly subjective. Since we don't appear to need weapons anymore, thank goodness, Cleveland said. Then we don't need the money we were going to buy weapons with, do we, Brother Graves? I don't accept the connection between the artifact and our faith, Graves said. I'm confident that if we drill down and bring the object to the surface, which we could do very easily, it will have no adverse effect on Pearl Valley or the transformationist community. He shook his head slowly and continued. But no, I don't see that the community has a serious need for money. 
Many of those who join us do so after successful careers in the wider world, and the members who guide our investments are quite skilled. Then I suggest, Cleveland began. His face changed, and he straightened on his seat. Captain Leary, he said in a formal tone, forgive me for forgetting that you and my mother are each due a third of any treasure which the expedition finds, and it appears that we have found a treasure. If my sister were here, Daniel said, she might have an opinion on the matter. But she isn't here, and I'm not in the business of money. He shrugged and said, No treasure has been recovered. You owe me absolutely nothing, and I'm confident that Mistress Sand would say the same. Not that it matters, because she isn't here any more than Deirdre is. Daniel looked at Adele and raised an eyebrow. Do you have anything to add, Lady Mundy? He asked. You had some business of your own to transact on Coursera, I believe. I've accomplished everything I came to do, Adele said, in a neater fashion than either Deirdre Leary or Mistress Sand can have imagined that I would, neater than I imagined myself. Then I think we're done with necessary business, Daniel said, nodding. However, he looked around the compartment. His grin was just short of splitting his face. Although it doesn't matter to anybody, and therefore nobody can be disappointed, I do have an idea as to where Captain Pearl hid whatever it was he brought from Bay. Anybody else interested in seeing if I'm right? He's really a little boy, Adele thought. Then, may he never change. Cleveland stood up, grinning back at Daniel. I may have found peace and enlightenment, he said, but I haven't lost my sense of curiosity. I certainly would like to learn. And I, said Graves, rising also. Hog? said Daniel, getting to his feet. You usually carry fishing lures, don't you? Aye, said Hogg, and I've got a shotgun if you'd like to try the local game besides. Just the lure, said Daniel. We're going fishing for treasure. That was another entry in our complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the production cycle of a steel mill in Gary, Indiana, turned into 20,000 commemorative manhole covers and sink basins, and the Bain headquarters skyscraper lit in blue and red for one entire month to honor Eric Flint, that would be the red, and Griffin Barber, that would be the blue, authors of 1636 Mission to the Muggles, new entry in the Ring of Fire series. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.